Today is Wednesday, February 28th, 2024, and it's, uh, wow, 2.45 in the afternoon. Let's get rolling. I'm John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast, portions of which we broadcast Saturday nights on WGN Radio. Share us with your friends, please, and give us a good rating if you think we deserve it. I think we do. You can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. John Hanson here from WGN Radio, Block Club Chicago, and your Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, Kate Plies, former Chicago reporter columnist, now doing the Chicago History website, Roseland, Chicago, 1972. Zarek Zorn, the editor and publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, reporting once again from the Picayune Sentinel's Oaxaca, Mexico Bureau. What bureau is that again? Oaxaca, Mexico. It's about 300 miles south of Mexico City. It's going good there still there? Yeah, we we, go, we come down here. And we come south every year for a working vacation. So Hannah's over the, over the other room working, and I'm working here. And, and uh, we just enjoy the warm weather. It's like 92 degrees today here. And I've been looking at the weather in Chicago over the last few days, realizing that we've paid a lot of money to be down here when we, for getting an extra 15 degrees of warmth. But I guess... Today it's paying off. So. Well, Chicago has been very much about the weather because we had such violent weather last night. And it was so warm the day before. Some folks saw about 80. And now today we woke to 20s. And as it would turn out, it was also the last day of Tom Skilling, the famous weatherman's forecast. Uh, you know how sometimes the city gets transfixed on a topic and they talk it to death? We have done that with dear old Tom Skilling. God bless yes. him. There's, there's no fault of his own, but he said yes to everything. And we have been wall-to-wall Skilling for how many days, John? Many. Oh, I don't- whole month if you haven't done a feature on tom skilling you have to turn in your broadcast license you you can no longer be a media entity you know i was on the air last night during the storms and there was something comforting about turning on the right fader and still listening to skilling tell me when to take cover we did a skilling off on my radio show today where we asked people to call in and do their best tom skilling impersonation even congressman raja krishnamurthy gave us his best So how about this? What do Mike Pence and Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth have in common? Both have families, thanks to IVF, and both have spoken out in favor of legislation to protect the science and progress that gives couples a means to have children. It's a very complicated process that Senator Tommy Tuberville just can't get his head around. The Alabama Supreme Court found that the destruction of embryos in a fertility clinic constitutes unlawful death of a minor because, as Nikki Haley put it, embryos are babies. I am so shocked at the fact that Nikki Haley is to the right of Donald Trump on this, that she's making Donald Trump look good because he right away was talking about trying to fix that, basically. Mm-hmm. Since I think many people hope that something is going to happen to to knock Trump out of the race, it's kind of depressing to think that that turns out to be what the Republican <laughs> alternative Don't you is. hate it when he gets something right, is what you're saying. Yeah. So I have to admit, that's, that's where my mind mostly is. But also, when I looked at it just a, a little bit earlier today, a little bit more, I was really shocked by a map that came up of states that have introduced bills to basically make any fertilized egg, whether it's in utero or not, a a person. And it's quite a lot where these bills have been introduced, including Illinois, New York, West Virginia, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, South Carolina, Florida, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, Utah, and Arizona, which is the only place... Say that life begins at conception, in other words? That a fertilized egg is has the legal status of a born person. Okay, Those but, are bills so, introduced, not passed. Right? Introduced, right. Just introduced in 15 states. But the thing is, usually when I see something like this regarding any kind of reproductive freedom... I look at it, and the map is just showing me all southern states, Texas, maybe. And I don't usually see Illinois. Really? It's even getting introduced there? It's, to me, the logical conclusion of if you are a right to life or because you believe that life is sacred and it begins at conception, then, yeah, this this makes sense to me, in utero or extra utero, one day old or 
pick a number of weeks old if you believe in the concept. I don't know how you say the concept evaporates at a certain point. So this, to me, is a problem of the conservative right's own doing, and it's just the most extreme extension of it. But the application is right there. It's just so politically toxic because they've, they've taken polls in this. And if you take a poll of people who oppose abortion in general, only about 12% of them or so uh, say they're opposed to IVF because they know that IVF is something that, that it, it produces life, that, that families like the Duckworths and the Pences and, and thousands of others have children today because of IVF. You say we can't have that procedure. That's a politically very tight. And that poll, those polls, by the way, are people who oppose abortion, who include the majority of the population that does approve of, of, of abortion rights. Then you end up with, with this being a really, really extreme I look at it from two perspectives. Politically, I think Nikki Haley got caught up in that she answered before former President Trump had weighed in because when the Republicans speak before President Trump, they often find themselves at odds against what he said. It took him a few days to come out with the statement that he did, which then provided cover for the rest of the Republicans to then say, no, this isn't what we want. And she's tried to walk her statement back a little bit. She's tried to nuance it, but that's neither here nor there. Go ahead, John. These are the unintended things that you've let the genie out of the bottle when you propose and you have something like Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade, right? Like this is what ends up happening. So it may not be what you were well-intentioned to do in trying to stand up for the right for life, but these are the unintended consequences. Yes, it's 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 like when you propose banning books, and no, maybe you're not the one burning books, but someone will. And this week we saw a Missouri Attorney General candidate burning books with a blowtorch in her campaign ad. So some of the things that you talk about, and even if you don't advocate for the far right end of it, there are unintended consequences. From a personal perspective, this is what we're going through IVF, my husband and I, and I would have known a lick about it a year ago, and I'm amazed at how much now I do know about this process and how fraught it is, how fragile these embryos are, and how simple mistakes can lead to them simply not existing anymore. Embryos get stuck in pipettes. Are you telling me IVF clinics should be sued for wrongful death because that embryo gets stuck in a pipette? Things have to get shipped across areas. Are we supposed to start suing UPS, FedEx, or any cryogenic frozen company for moving an embryo? These things happen. It's the unintended consequences of creating life. Did, did they offer you and Enrique the opportunity just to fertilize a couple of eggs uh, at a time so that you wouldn't ever have to dispose of anyone? Or or did they have a whole bunch at a time? Do you know how many they tried to fertilize before? I mean, I, I don't really know that much about the practice and how many embryos get created. There's a, a lot of different things there. First of all, you can do freezer or frozen egg um, you get you get a donor that's a frozen egg donor, I meaning you have a certain allotment of them, but they still create embryos out of as many as they can, five or six. Or you do live egg donation where through a woman's cycle, she might create 15, 20 of them. And the goal is to create as many embryos as you possibly can to give you as many options. Number one, they don't sometimes transfer correctly. And there's a miscarriage, just like in a normal sort of situation. Uh, number two, sometimes they're genetically tested and there are ma- major problems that that embryo would never, ever see the light of day because of something that is wrong with it genetically. So the vast, 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 I'd say over 99% of people end up with more embryos than they were, that they need, that they ultimately will use to create life. You can donate them. They can be donated to science. So they can be discarded in a respectful way. And that may all sound icky, but all of this goes towards creating life, which is like the whole point is creating life. If people are so for couples coming together and creating life, this is the way it works. And if you say that you lose a single embryo, there's a wrongful death lawsuit, it will shut down IVF as we know it across the United States. And 2% of all babies now are born via IVF. John, then you and Enrique found a woman to carry the child to term from one of you as the donor, right? Still working on officially signing that, but yeah, that's the next part in the process. It's not... The same person often. I mean, some couples go through IVF and 
they end up implanting the em- embryo into the the mother and she gives birth that isn't an option in our situation so we also have to get a surrogate but it's an egg donor we don't know and but have read profiles and been genetically matched to make sure everything works and i john i literally cannot imagine if this was in illinois we are we are days away from this happening for us an embryo creation and i just to put yourself in in the mindset of someone who has tried for years to have a baby and just can't and you are days away from getting to the next stage where you have this possibility something you've dreamed of and now for it all just to be tossed into we don't know what's going to happen next i mean i can't even it's not affecting me right it's not affecting our state it's even hard for me to listen to these stories because it still kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck raise up because of fear about our process getting shut down, too. Well, this happened to some people in in Alabama where right where you were, they got a call at night going, guess what? We're shutting it down. There were people that were doing the transfer the next day, meaning the embryo has been tested. It is ready to go into either themselves or a surrogate. They are finally there to create life, to have that baby that they've dreamed of, spent a lot of money on, oftentimes injected with so many different drugs to try and recreate this thing, to make it work, just to be told, well, we don't know. It's alarming. It's crazy. It's so politically toxic that in Alabama, there was a, there's been legislation proposed that would allow for IVF, but only up through next April. So basically it gets them through the election season, because I, I think this is the kind of issue that wow. will really get voters exercise. And uh, so it, it gives you an idea of how dangerous this topic is. And, and Donald Trump realized it right away to his credit. He distanced himself from this ruling. <laughs> um, IVF is a, is a very popular procedure for obvious reasons just listen to john talk about it it's it's uh, it's something that has become really mainstream you say two percent of all babies born are ivf these days yep. that's uh, that's I like what that's staggering. that is I mean, staggering that's a staggering number and you're going to tell those parents and those kids that the process that they use they can no longer use it and that uh, they're sort of legally dubious status i mean it's it's really politically horrifying well it's not a legally dubious status i mean it's possible maybe this is like the abortion situation in this country leave it up to the states and if alabama wants to live in that space they can shut down all the clinics and everybody that wants that procedure will have to find a way to do it out of state i mean would you guys agree that this is something that should be left to the individual states to decide, or should there be a, a federal mandate? Definitely a federal mandate. I think I think it's a human right to be able to to control like this. And um, I, I know there's been a movement. Tammy Duckworth has introduced legislation. Yep. She's done it before, and it's never moved because Republicans realize that it, at the time it was, I guess, offending their base. That they're going to leave well enough alone. But now that it's actually a reality, now that it's a threat, I can really see. This uh, legislation going through and being being approved in the Senate and the House, uh, because I I think the Republicans are terrified of this issue. That is what I was going to say. <laughs> now that uh, now that there's a reason for this to uh, resonate with the Republicans, um, she might have some better luck with it. But I was just wondering if anybody had seen anything on whether legal analysts think that it would stand up to the Supreme Court or not. The outcome that would be the harshest they would impose, I imagine, would be what John suggested, like, leave it up to the states. And even Alabama's legislature right now is starting to tackle this issue and try and cover it. So I think that this issue will be settled, whether it's through federal laws or every single state legislature coming forward and saying we will protect IVF because it is that politically toxic this is the this is a third rail of third rails that you don't want to touch i don't think that the supreme court would ever rule to toss it out entirely but i guess i've thought that before this is one i didn't see coming i didn't know about the law and i didn't know about the lawsuit well even this ruling if you read it is meant for the three plaintiffs even the judges themselves did not expand this beyond this it was for these three plaintiffs for their wrongful debt lawsuit uh, that doesn't mean that it couldn't expand Further, of course, if it's taken up, they can take specific rulings and widen them to broad bases of people. But I don't know if they're like with other Supreme Court test cases, whether it's the current case about um, government regulation and uh, agency oversight, they, where, where people or groups, both sides do this, they handpick a case 
trying to get it to the Supreme Court. I don't know of groups that are trying to handpick IVF cases in order to fast track the <laughs> yeah. Supreme Court to decide it. This whole issue, to me, it underscores this idea that the that opposition to abortion at the, at the far edges of it is rooted in this idea that life begins at conception. That's why you can't have, have agreements. You can't. It's just like an irreconcilable issue in some ways. So when you say life doesn't begin at conception, uh, so suddenly you're talking about, well, do you, yeah, it's a human life in the, in the, in the Petri dish, but, but it has to be implanted into the woman before it's an actual baby. Uh, that those, at some point, you're realizing, you're, you're, you're realizing that maybe the opposition to abortion is not really based on that, but it's based on, on matters having to do with sex. And the people are, are the, the real objections to people who are having sex without trying to have babies, but they're having sex for fun, and the, and the Republicans and conservatives don't like that. If you say that this fertilized embryo is a is that life begins at conception, then then you're then you, you can't be in favor of IVF because IVF inevitably destroys those uh, some embryos. Well, you could fix that just with one. All you got to do is say life begins at conception in utero. You could, but why does that make any sense? Why does that make any moral sense? I mean, if if, if a fertilized embryo is human life. Why does it matter where it is? I mean, you know, there are people who object to birth control pills for that reason, because birth control pills prevent the implantation. You can fertilize the embryo, but it, it, it comes out. You, you run into a, a moral problem when you're tra- talking about uh, Yeah, but are you saying, but you're. Where are you drawing the line? I don't know, but you're, it sounds like you're suggesting that the reason Republicans are this way is because they don't like uh, extracurricular sex, sex for fun. You're not saying that, are you, Eric? I am saying that. I know, and that's that's not true. That is the root. I think that is the root of of uh, opposition to abortion. I really do. I wow. Think that, that it is a, and it, that's why. If, that's why. Well, what, what else makes sense? Why, why are our conservative and religious people so interested in in controlling uh, women's reproductive rights and in controlling fetal tissue and embryonic tissue? And then they and and, and as I think who was it? Uh, said because that the Bible tells them that life is begins at conception or something akin to that. I've had Bible passages sent to me that would refute that, but it's not about the enjoyment of sex it's about the beginning of life i'm i'm kind of i'm quite surprised at you eric it sounds like you've thought this through and you think that conservatives don't enjoy sex or or frown on people having it for fun oh i think i think they enjoy it i just think they frown on other people (laughs) i I, I mean tell me tell me what what explains why why would that would conservatives who, who you know want to take away school lunches from living children and don't really seem to care about about supporting children once they're born are so obsessed with embryonic tissue and fetal tissue why does this animate them so much uh and and and, and then and so and there are people who who would say well okay in the case of, of rape or incest then then abortion is okay and that makes absolutely no sense Right. Right. No. Uh, yeah. Way. Yeah. I'm, I. I can track with that. I can track with that. And, and yet they know that. It, and also, if, if they say that uh, a woman who gets an abortion should not be punished. This is a, this is a big tenet of the of the, of the pro of the pro life movement, which is they don't want women punished for getting abortions. But by their own definition, women who get abortions are murderers. They're contract murderers. So like it's like if you took your child into a, a pediatrician's office and said, "Kill him," and and, and left. By the necessity of their logic, that's how they view abortion as murder. You see the science, you see the abortion. Abortion is murder, but they don't. They, they really don't want to go there because they know it's politically unpalatable. Right. But give them a chance, and they will. Give, give, look at some of the, of the third world countries where they have uh, really strict anti-abortion laws. They do imprison women. And I think that, that would be coming here if we, if we keep letting it going down the slope. Eric is right that there is certainly a certain percentage. We don't know how big a percentage of of people who at root that is what their objection is. But can I just complicate this even more? It's only going to become a more fraught issue as they continue working on ways to develop embryos and fetuses outside the womb. I recently saw a picture of a fetal lamb being developed inside an artificial womb. It was really pretty bizarre. What are you saying about that? Well, what I'm saying is, when does an embryo become a fetus? And, and when are they a person if it's if they are not implanted in yeah, the womb? Right, right. That because... is going to become a very, very fraught question, and probably pretty soon. All I know is anytime you put reproductive rights on the ballot, 
or if state legislatures are left to make these decisions, very often the voters tell them to do to err in the side of allowing reproductive access. The Supreme Court left it to the states. The states have held numbers of ballots initiatives, including in Kentucky and in Kansas, and the pro-choice sides have come out and dominated those conversations. So I, I'm not going to wade into the <laughs> to the Eric Zorn, what really drives people to have the opinions they have. But from a political perspective, I feel comforted knowing that IVF is safe. If Alabama is going to go and make a law to protect it for women and men, and I feel like there will be enough support of IVF to prevent this slippery slope argument from taking hold. I want to move on to another topic here, but I'll say two things about it before we do. One is that Alabama, its IVF is not illegal. It is the unlawful destruction of the embryos, which is illegal, or that at least created this civil case. So you can use in vitro fertilization. The question unresolved right now is what do we do with the embryos, or what happens if an embryo is damaged or destroyed somehow? And one other thing, John, you and I talked about your circumstance with Enrique in the hallway. Was that before we knew about this Alabama I think ruling? it was that day. I it think it was day. literally that day. And, and, I, and so I was kind of caught up to speed on what is a revelation maybe for the panel and our listeners here. And I appreciate you being this candid about it. I just wanted to say how what a marvel it is and how marvelous it is what you and all kinds of couples are able to enjoy. I was almost in tears when you were telling me about it because I was just so happy for you. I can't oh, think you. of two people who will be better parents who are more loving and caring and intelligent and you guys are a great couple and uh, lucky the kid that is going to be raised by the two of you so hats off to you and congratulations in advance i hope everything goes as well as it has so far thank you yeah fingers crossed that means a lot john and uh i you know i hope that we'll be able to chat about it more as we go through the process because it is something that i have learned so much about and i actually really enjoy the thousands of questions that everyone has on it because I, I had the same the questions. If, yeah, I had <laughs> the same questions about a year ago, and uh, it's fun to discover how amazing science is. You, you should team up with Cheryl Scott, the uh, weathercaster on Channel 7, who's been harvesting her eggs. If you uh, guess we do like a big Q&A for everybody and uh, you know, about all the various parts of the process. More people will show up if you put her on the poster, too. <laughs> Seriously, Chicago does a lot of things right. Our city leaders, businesses, teams, maybe we don't talk enough about the talent on display in Chicago, but the ballot going out in March is going to have a referendum, a question worded in a way that a court has ruled is, in fact, unconstitutional. Too late to reprint the ballots, so now voters will be asked a question whose answer won't matter and whose results won't even be tabulated. Put an asterisk by that sentence, but let me finish my introduction. The Bring Chicago Home referendum would ask voters if they want to lower the real estate transfer tax on properties under a million dollars, but raise the tax on properties above. Eric, catch me up on this and why that we thought earlier in the week was going to be an invalid question. Well, the referendum calls for an increase in property ta- in property transfer taxes for properties that sell for a million dollars or more, and, and a slight decrease in the real estate property transfer tax on properties that sell for less than that. And the question combines those. Do you want to have this decrease along with this increase? And the opponents of the referendum say that you can't do that. You can't put in a sweetener. You can't say, well, we'll give you, we'll give you a, something good here if you vote for something you may not like, which is this, which is this uh, property tax hike. So last Friday, a judge did not explain her ruling, but, she, but if you read the brief of the, of the um, plaintiffs in the case, you'll see that they, they make the argument that this is unconstitutional. You can't ask to read uh, this, what is, or amounts to separate questions by throwing in this sweetener. They call it a, they call it log rule. I'm not exactly sure why. And and so that appears to be what the judge has ruled. Because the truth is that the council at any time could have lowered that tax on its own. They don't need voter approval to lower the property transfer tax. They do need approval to to raise it. So they've thrown in gratuitously this lowering of the tax. 
in order to try to build support for raising the tax. And the people who are objecting are saying that's not right. And the judge apparently has agreed. And I'm not exactly sure where it stands. John Hanson, I think you said you might were maybe a little bit more up to speed about where the appeal is going to go and how yeah, there's two separate appeals that are murking their way through the system right now, but no rulings yet on where this goes. And we're running out of time. I do think the one wise thing was to you're not going to strike it off the ballot. So there's still both sides encouraging people to vote the way you want to vote. Just in case we find out in a week that actually, okay, the votes will not be sequestered. They will actually be counted. But that really raises some questions about what about this five or six days interim when people have been voting and not knowing whether this question is legit on the ballot or not. So I don't know if that quite answers the question. But where are we in general on the underlying principle, regardless of the wording of it? But, John, do you think that this is a good way to fund the services for unsheltered Chicagoans charge more in the transfer of property for wealthier, for more expensive properties? <laughs> Is that an option on the ballot? Yeah. It's like one of those great things in principle that sounds wonderful, right? And I just want to vote for it. Uh, first of all, I don't live in Chicago anymore, so I will not be vote. I'm not eligible to vote for it, um, nor will it impact me if I, if I, if it does pass. But I have a lot of questions. How are things really earmarked for specific uh, funds? Uh, it sounds great, but what are the unintended consequences for small business owners or landlords? Generally speaking, I think I would vote no, but I guess I don't have a great reason for it otherwise, other than I don't like the overall position Chicago is in financially. And while this is a noble cause to fight for, I don't feel like it is... I don't trust the city to spend my money the right way anyways. <laughs> I'll bet if you had a property that was worth $1.6 million, you owned a three-flat, you lived on the first level, you rented out the other two or sold those, now you're going to try and sell it, and suddenly there's a huge tax on the transfer of the title, you'd probably feel different about that. It's hard to vote to give your government the opportunity to take more money from you if you see how it's spent and see how they manipulate their budgets to make it seem like they're in much better shape than they are, right? Like, so then it's like a principled stance of, I get this is, this could potentially reach people's pockets that need it, that don't even have pockets right now, but I don't trust the way, the rest of the way you do things. So I just can't give you this, this win, I guess you could say. Yeah. I think, well, see, I, I bet I'm not wrong. I bet there's a lot of people thinking that too. And, and John, this is exactly why they included in this referendum question is this idea of lowering the tax on people whose properties are worth less than a million dollars, which is what I believe the judge is going going to say is unconstitutional. And and I, I get that. It's like saying, hey, we'll give you this. You know, you people who make certain less money, you'll be better off. If we let us tax the, the more expensive properties more. And so that's the, the hints, the sentiment that John just articulated is exactly why they added this unnecessary thing. Because one thing that is maybe not as well known is the city council tried twice earlier to put a straight, a straight up referendum on the ballot, just increase the property taxes on property over a million dollars. They tried that twice. It failed twice. It only succeeded when they added the sweetener for lower income. I think a lower income a property worth seven hundred fifty thousand dollars is not lower income, but 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 that that's why this referendum question is seen as potentially a, a probably unconstitutional. It's also misrepresented as like a, being a mansions tax, and I'd be I'm really in favor of the mansions tax. I think if you've got someone whose who's personal residence is worth more than a million dollars, I'm I'm all about progressive taxation. If your house is worth more than a million dollars, you should pay more. For sure. The problem is that a lot of properties that have that are worth more than a million dollars are three flats and six flats where the individual residences are not really worth nearly that much. And so you really are not necessarily just hitting wealthy people here. There are people who may they may own that much property, but these are not like these are not necessarily mansions. And I think they should uh, when they if and when they have to go back to the drawing board, they might think about just just going after single-family uh, residences or places where the units themselves are worth a million dollars. That could actually uh, work in everyone's favor if they have to go back to the drawing board on that, because I, I think I think that is the biggest problem with this. The more the longer I've sat with it, the more I have felt like, as much as I'd like to see a dedicated revenue stream, as much as we all would like to see homeless problem fixed in Chicago. Um, I would not 
vote yes on this referendum. I, and and I, I feel like it has been somewhat deceptive, unfortunately, from the activist side. You make the point that they have been calling it a mansion tax, and it is not a mansion tax. That's going to be a very small part of the people who pay. It's going to be almost all small multi-unit buildings and then larger commercial real estate and small commercial real estate. Um, Cranes was talking about some buyers who bought a small place in Irving Park, used to be a dry cleaner. They wanted to make it into a daycare. They, just this past August, spent $2.6 million to buy it, and they paid 19500 for the transfer tax, as it stands now. And if Bring Chicago Home had been in place, they would have paid almost $50,000 instead. That's like a $30,000 difference. So that's a lot of money. So I think it's a little deceptive when the activist side tells us that they just believe that there will be no impact on development, on economic development, or even affordable housing development, or whether or not it could raise people's rents. Because that'll happen. That'll happen. I, oh, it, yeah. it, it could. No one knows that it won't. I, I I find it very irritating when people pretend to know things that they don't know. <laughs> we and work at radio. That's what we're yeah. supposed to do. Boy, am I in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, both sides. But you know the you know this is this is homeless activists who we would like to side with versus big bad property interests, right? But a lot of those property interests are actually small mom and pop people owning even a two flat in a relatively expensive neighborhood could easily be 1.5 million. Well, how do you guys know? What makes you all so certain that the reason that they included the the transfer cut for 90 plus percent of the properties, that that was done almost cynically? Isn't that a good thing unto itself. If you told 90 plus percent of the title transfers in Chicago that it's going to cost less, that's something Brandon Johnson ran on. That was part of his campaign, right? Why are you making that squishy face, John Hansen? Because it's like $30 less. And this reminds me of the state progressive tax, where it turned out that ever most people would get a 0.005% reduction well, the wealthy would get the bigger increases. Of course, it is written, and that, and that's why they put it in the in the referendum. They wouldn't do that if it would. And that's the other thing that Eric brings up such a great point. This is the people you trust your tax dollars to, the people that didn't figure out that this would be an unconstitutional amendment. To vote on. <laughs> I wondered if it was very curious. I, I reported on this maybe a month ago when this lawsuit was first filed. I was intrigued by it. So I contacted the Bring Chicago Home people and I said, well, what's, what's the answer to this? I mean, these guys are saying this is it. And their answer was, was oh, these are big, bad, wealthy real estate people and they don't care about homeless people. And that was their answer. And that's still been their answer. If you read the news coverage, it's, it's a lot of, of harumphing and finger wagging at the people who filed the suit. But I haven't heard the argument, which is, I, I think, potentially legally plausible, which is that really this is just one question. One question is, should we tinker with the property transfer taxes and, and, and to tinker with them in this way? It's not like they're asking about, you know, should we fund White Sox Stadium and then should we uh, help homeless uh, mothers or whatever? These, these are integrally related questions. And it may not, an appellate court may rule that it doesn't violate this uh, this idea of, of single-subject referendum questions. That may be the truth, but I haven't heard that legal argument. All I've just heard is a lot of a lot of screaming and crying and accusations about racism and voter suppression from from the opponents uh, from the sorry, from the opponents of the of the um, lots of people who are favoring the referendum. And uh, I think that's been a mistake. I mean, this is a serious legal question that they're raising. Why ever, you know, whatever their motives, the legal point they made is serious enough that they won last week and they may continue to win. And I, 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 you need to engage it on that level, not just accuse them of being bad people. You have to make a serious argument against it because let's point out city council can reduce the tax anytime they want. They don't have to ask permission for it from anybody, from the legislature or in a voter referendum. So there's no reason whatsoever for it to be there, except in order to, I hate to say it, but deceive people. It's it's another another way that I feel like they're, instead of just making a straight argument, kind of deceiving people. Well, when I pay for something, I like to see what I'm getting for it. And I'm somewhat fundamentally opposed to title transfers, uh, taxes anyway. I mean, 
that money is now baked into the budget. We need that money. So we can't just say, oh, yeah, this is stupid. But it is stupid. You're not getting anything for it. It's like it's it's an electronic transfer now. I guess we sign documents at real estate closing. But what's the service? What's the value of that service? A little bit. But is it worth $50,000? And why would that be progressive anyway? If if it's to ensure that, in fact, that's a clear title and now you have the title, there's something to that. But why would that be worth more on an expensive property than on an inexpensive property? It's a single, simple service that's provided, and I, and I guess you should pay for it. But you shouldn't pay $50,000 for it or 19005 You should pay $19.50 for that. I'd like to see them come back with this maybe in November if they've really got it figured out. And, and one of the things could easily be that this uh, this increase in the tax doesn't happen until more like five million, which is how I think it is in Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. um, you know, and then you're you're at least cutting out the small business owners and the small mom and pop landlords. They really should not be included in having to pay more. But then, what's the point also, of it anyway? Then, what's the point of it anyway? Well, because to now provide it's a, a, a to provide a steady revenue source for for homeless programs on fewer and fewer properties, though. I, I definitely think that's still an issue, and and I wish there was some something some sort of study for us to look at to get an idea of what effect might happen with that. But it's it's at least a legitimate thing to to shoot at. It, they have not really told us exactly what would happen with that money. And the way you craft ho- home- homeless policy, it, it matters. I mean, look at San Francisco. They're not doing it right over there. Whatever they're doing, they're not doing it right. And they're spending a lot of money. Um, I think the voters have a right to know what exactly the policies would be. It was also part of the lawsuit. Another complaint was that this, the money had not been appropriately earmarked. It was just, it, you know, they trust us and spend it on homelessness. And, and that... That's essentially what it, what it amounts to. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Eric, catch us up on the Officer French story. I want to just spend a, a few minutes on this and what happened in court or didn't happen in court, actually. Can you can you kind of brief us on that? Yeah, the trial right now is going on. Amante Morgan, who was accused of murdering a Chicago police officer, Ella French, back in August of 2021 during a, a traffic stop in which gunfire erupted. And prior to the trial, the judge ruled that police officers in uniform could show up in court. But he has since limited, uh, I guess, the mother, Amante Morgan's mother, came with a a free Amante Morgan or Justice for Amante Morgan T-shirt, and he made her cover that up in the viewing gallery. Um, And this this reinforces for me the necessity of keeping theatrics to an absolute minimum in the courtroom and, and outside the courtroom. Evidently, the, uh, the Monte Morgan's people have been putting up posters or flyers on, on utility poles around the courthouse trying to get the attention of, of uh, jurors. And I, I think that jurors should not necessarily see who's in the courtroom. I think that having police officers in uniform sends them a message. And having family members wearing T-shirts sends them a different message. You know, I don't want jurors in any trial to be sent any kind of message. And I, I made the same point back when uh, Officer Van Dyke was on trial for the Laquan McDonald shootings. There were a lot of protesters outside the courthouse you know, yelling about, about you know, convict this criminal and, and justice for Laquan and so on. I totally believe in justice for Laquan McDonald. I also believe in justice for Officer Van Dyke. I think uh, and, and that's what a fair trial is about. Fair trial should not be uh, like a, a sporting event where spectators get to weigh in and, 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 the, and the decision, the finding of fact is influenced by public opinion because that's like that borders on mob rule. So I think the judge allowing uniformed police officers in the courtroom is wrong. I don't think there should be any hint from the people in the gallery how they feel because how they feel is not important. And I think the judge really made a mistake in allowing that in the courtroom. So do you think police... Uniformed police officers, any of them should be allowed to sit in the gallery then? No, I think they should. I, I, I think anything that suggests that you have some sympathy with one side or the other, if the jury can see them, should not be allowed. The judge felt otherwise. In, in the past, Eric, haven't there been trials where they did not allow the courtroom to be packed with officers in full uniform? I feel like we've heard about this before. I think there have been. I'm going to be cases where the, where the uh, because they, they, they can do that. And, and you know, I. 
have total sympathy for the police officers. I have total sympathy for the dangers they face. And it's, just, it's just nothing to do with that. It just has to do with right. that. You don't, you wouldn't want to have, you, you know, you wouldn't want to have 30 people in the audience wearing, you know, free Monte Morgan t-shirts either. Uh, and essentially right. still showing up in, in, in a police officer in a uniform coming to a trial is sending a message to the jury that like they, they're seeking a conviction. And I, I, just, I don't think that that should be even a controversial viewpoint on my part because you, you don't want juries to convict or acquit based on what they see in the program. You, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. what they see in the gallery. I can imagine the officer saying, I'm not here to try to influence the jury. I'm here to support my colleague. Well, it's um, like being the one person at the road game when everyone else is in the home jerseys in the crowd. Obviously, this is the millionth of stakes, but I guess it it can make you feel a little uncomfortable and maybe you would choose to act differently. I guess, you know, there is that sense of if you're looking as a juror and 80% of the people in the gallery are police officers in uniform, that does give the sense of, I don't know whether it's intimidation or just, oh, this is the side I should be on. I went into this discussion thinking, who cares, let them wear their uniform. But Eric Zorn brought up some good points. I think I might have switched sides here. Wow. I'm going to segue to a different topic, and I don't mean to be callous about this. But speaking of sports, Eric has uh, spent some time writing in his Picayune Sentinel about Caitlin Clark. I love Caitlin Clark. I love watching her play. I think it's very difficult to compare the record that she is about to break. I think she's going to probably break Pete Maravich's scoring record for any kind of NCAA basketball. She's got 17 points to go, something like that. She's got a couple more games to do it. Um, But it's very hard to compare her record with his. He played three years only, and he didn't have a three-point shot. He scored 44 points a game, but he took – Way he took twice as many shots per game as she did. You know, in baseball, every player gets to bat about the same number of times, so you can compare like home run records and so on. In basketball, it's very difficult. I think you should just sort of maybe set that aside and say that she is a singular talent. It's amazing to watch. I see that the prices for tickets for the Ohio State Iowa game this weekend are up over three thousand dollars in Iowa City. That, that she stands to transform the WNBA. But uh, the other point that I made is I, I did ask my readers whether they thought that she could play in the NBA. She's a phenomenal shooter, great passer. Uh, a third of them said that they thought she could play. In the NBA, in not the NBA. WNBA. And, 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 and it's clearly absurd. She's she's uh, six one and uh, or six, I think six feet tall, 150 pounds, which would make her just about the smallest player, if not the smallest player in the NBA. And, uh, and when you're that small in the NBA, you have to be like Muggsy Bogues or Spud Webb. You have to be really, really fast. And they could explosive. dunk, by the way. And and Spud Webb yeah. won the slam dunk contest, too. But I, I think she can actually transform women's basketball. She can uh, – the, the TV ratings for this game on Sunday uh, against Ohio State, they're, Ohio State's ranked second. I think Iowa's ranked sixth right now. I think those TV ratings are going to be huge. And you know, ticket sales are already huge. And then she goes to the WNBA, or they're at some year, or they're at this after this season. Uh, she's going to draw crowds like we haven't seen before. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's she's a really incredible talent. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. I think what's impressive about her is she has people that know nothing about basketball or women's basketball and all know her name. Right? I'm someone that would I would consider myself in that camp. I don't follow college basketball men's. Or women's, and I know who Caitlin Clark is, and I know the record that she's chasing, and I think that that provides such value—not only the high ticket sales, but just the people watching. But just to I that I can name a women's a woman's college basketball player, even though I don't pay attention to any of it. That that's a big deal, right? I think you start to enter. There's very few athletes that do that, and to have it be a woman on a college basketball team, I think it's huge. You're right to cut through the culture like that as one person. Uh, is is really extraordinary. I think that's why Eric took some heat then, because if you if if you qualify her success in any way, you're seen as disparaging her. But the idea that she could play in the NBA is preposterous. I she couldn't play for a Division One college men's basketball team, a college men's team. I don't think she would be a competitive player, and she wouldn't get the ball past half court if she was in an NBA uniform. She could make her shot, right? She can shoot from 38 and 42 feet. If she was wide open, she could sink a shot. But would 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 she be a credible player or just a gimmick 
They could just trot her out for the All Star game where they don't play any defense. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, she could play in the All Star game. If there was some paper, if there was some like singular thing where her skills were somehow woven into some hybrid men's game, I don't know. I I would like to see how she could compete with the men. But why do we have to? I I want to know why do we have to ask this question? I hate to be silly about it. Maybe it's just a general fascination we all have. But in my brain, I just separate them as two different sports that are they're the same sport, but two different things. And I don't feel the need to combine them. Like what people are like, what would Michael Jordan do in today's basketball? Why do we go to these lengths to do this? Why? Did you just kind of throw that out there to your readers as an interesting hypothetical or is this kind of a larger conversation where people are getting really, you know, exercised about whether or not Caitlin Clark could play in the NBA or not? I saw a bunch of posts on social media about it where, where people were arguing about it. And sports talk radio, they talk about it. And it's, it's okay. kind of clickbaity or, or what's the radio equivalent of clickbait? You need hot to take. talk about it. About hot All take. Right. Is so, so, there are um, a bunch of people, so there are a bunch of people who actually care about whether yeah, or not she could play in the NBA. Who know nothing like, about basketball. Yeah, yeah. So it came up actually also when Brittany Griner was in, uh, in prison over in Russia, and she was really sort of sort of a lot of news. And Brittany Griner is is I think six ten, and people were saying, well, she could play there. That was where that kind of conversation got rolling. And then you've got Caitlin Clark, who is to, to watch her play. First of all, she can shoot the ball from just about anywhere. She's phenomenal, but she's also a really good passer. Mm-hmm. She, she takes only 20 shots a game, and Pete Maravich took 38 shots per game. Pete Maravich, I know, was kind of a ball hog compared to Caitlin Clark. Um, so when you're comparing their various records, you got to look at all these different factors and say, you know, and I, I think Caitlin Clark, Pete Maravich was a very important ball player back in, you know, he graduated in 1970, so it was a long, long time ago. Uh, and I don't think he transformed the sport the way Caitlin Clark is going to transform her sport. Uh, she's going to be the Tiger Woods of the uh, of the WNBA. Women are 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 their own equal selves, completely completely by themselves. It absolutely does not matter in any way, shape, or form whether or not they are physically big and strong enough to play competitive sports with men. At many times, I, I know you guys will understand this better than I because I'm not a big sports fan, but my understanding is that the women's games are sometimes even more interesting to watch because they have to play with a little more strategy, a little more style, because they don't have as much physical strength. I just don't understand why anybody thinks it's uh, important. My son said to me this morning, when or last night when I was talking about it, he, he said what John Hansen said. He goes, wait a minute. Why is anybody even talking about this? Isn't it enough that the women's game is an interesting game unto itself, and you don't need to compare or contrast the abilities of the uh, of the two genders? But Eric did, and I was kind of intrigued by something else you dug up. Steve Bertrand stopped me in the hall after our show the other day. He said, I was could not believe when Zorn said on the radio about the 100-meter dash comparison between the men and women, that the fastest women in the world would be competitive high school boys runners, but wouldn't win the races in a track meet with high school boys. So I went and looked it up, and the fastest woman of all time is Florence Griffin Joyner, who in 1988 set the world record for the 100-meter dash at 10.4. The Illinois boys' high school record for the 100-meter dash is 10.15. The physical abilities are innate, and we shouldn't try and make too much out of the difference. Way to go for your son to say that, for sure. (laughs) I'm I'm really relieved that your research validated my uh, hypothesis. Yeah, but You didn't research it before you said that, Eric? I had no idea. No, I hadn't. But it had been a while. It had been several years ago I looked this up for for similar reasons. I think it had to do at the time I looked it up that this also plays into this whole idea of of trans, uh, trans girls playing in sports for girls. And, and that's when some of the stuff comes up. And, and, and that's why that's sort of a little bit of the, of the underpinning. And no one is saying that Caitlin Clark is trans or anything like that. But, but, the, but the, uh, that has been bubbling under the surface. And certainly if you look at the comment thread and the Picayune Sentinel on Tuesday, you'll see, or you'll see that that is on, or not Tuesday, last Thursday. You'll see a whole lot of, of, that, of that kind of conversation bubbling up as well. So that, that plays into the cultural moment that we're talking about here, too. I looked it up. Um... 10,000 male runners, in fact, have clocked faster 
than the current female Olympic champion. <laughs> well, does that and diminish any? But no, of course it doesn't. But but the point is, is that if you have gone through a biological male puberty, you have a, an amazing physical advantage over female athletes that they will never be able to overcome. And it doesn't matter how much they train, how much grit they have. It doesn't make any sense to to compare the apples and oranges. I think what it does is it insulates you from the criticism, John, that you're being sexist or not sufficiently appreciative of her talents. You're simply saying these are different kinds of beings, and here's the proof. But then I feel like I don't have to take a stake that almost feels like defensive towards my gender, which I feel like sometimes comes out in these discussions as if it's like, yeah, but she couldn't play with the boys, and it's maybe that's true, but why... Does it have to be said? Like, is and I'm not trying to call you out on this, John, but you were very vehement that that would never happen to a, a sense of Why say- enthousi- <laughs> enthusiasm that you don't bring other topics. I guess I'll say <laughs> there have been two women. There have been two women in history drafted by the NBA. Neither of them ever played a moment in the game, and I think they were done as some publicity stunts. And, 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 you know, she's got a whole bunch of endorsement contracts. She is, she's going to be like, a, she's a phenomenal presence, a cultural presence right now. And I don't think she would want to have anything to do with anything that would diminish that in some way to say like, well, yeah, you can't beat the worst player in the NBA one-on-one. Well, I don't know no, why I was so but, defensive about that, John. I, I, I wouldn't say defensive. <laughs> you just were fired up and I just was kind of surprised. Well, I was something and I'll have to get a therapist to explain that to me. Elite female athletes are more than happy to concede this point because it does not take anything away from them. I, I went and rewatched Serena Williams on David Letterman back in, I think, 2013 talking to him about it because in that year another male player Andy Murray had said in a friendly way that he would like to play her and she said to David Letterman I said no, Andy no stop saying that you know you you would slaughter me I would never do that that would be ridiculous and it's she went on later to admit that she even at the top of her game could not beat the top 100 male players because she's Serena Williams she doesn't have to be to pretend something that she's not what she is is enough i just feel like the, there's enough of an itch that people like to scratch with these debates that i think there's way more tv opportunities like the battle of the sexes between billy Jean king and bobby riggs that i would tune in to watch yeah. including just ordinary americans versus olympians like that sort of stuff i want to see oh, well, sure. that could be fun that could be so, fun we'll I, raced an Olymp- <laughs> I raced an olympic swimmer once in a tv bit in the morning on the morning show how'd I was that go on. We did two laps of the pool, back and forth. I I started. He waited till I was on the far end of it, so I had already completed half of it. That's when he dove in the water. <laughs> I got out of the pool and ran back, and he beat me. <laughs> so you got a head start, and you cheated. And I cheated. And the swimmer and still won. swam faster and, than you. And they gave me back the mic, and I couldn't breathe. I handed it off to him, and it was like he hadn't even taken a step. Yeah, He could talk and toss back to studio. But I, I do think that I, I am surprised more of this. And I guess the answer would be, of course, Caitlin Clark would not subject herself to do that sort of spectacle for only to maybe get, I don't want to say humiliated, but lose or something like that. Why do it? But I'd I'd pay to watch some of that, John. I, no, I think I'd, I'd like to see some sort of exhibition just for the novelty of it all. When Billie Jean King played Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean whooped him, but Bobby was not only old, out of shape, and he didn't take it seriously. That was just right. silly television. He had already beaten Yvonne Gulligan. Bobby I, Riggs no, 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 Margaret no, Court. Margaret Court. Margaret Court. He beat Margaret, Margaret Court. On the run. 6 2 6 one. Wow. Yeah. Did he beat Yvonne Gulligan also? Mm, if he did, it was not that year. Um, okay. He first played Margaret Court, and he won six two six one, and that's why Billie Jean King decided to go ahead and play him because she had first wanted Billie Jean, even though Margaret Court was the top female tennis player of the time. I saw some some survey where they asked a bunch of random men whether they thought they could win a point in tennis off Serena Williams, and something like a third of them said that they thought they could, which is crazy. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, like, yeah, at the at the very elite levels, uh, yes, the men are better than the women, but but Serena Williams is better than 
99.99999% of all men who play tennis anywhere. Oh, just like right at the very top. Right. She's not, but, but, you know, it's like the, the idea that she's just like an average guy is just completely not true. And the same with Caitlin Clark. Someone, someone asked me, like, what would happen if you played Caitlin Clark one on one and she spotted you six points? Up to ten, I said she wouldn't ten to six, maybe ten to seven. I might, I might be able to throw one in, but no, she's really good. And you're six six, right? Yeah, but I'm also sixty six years old too. So, yeah. <laughs> the Doomsday Clock. What is it? What do they call it? The Bureau of Atomic Scientists or something? The people that run the Doomsday Clock said the that we are of atomic the bulletin, and that we are. What I actually it? used to work there. Isn't that crazy? Come in every day and look at the Doomsday Clock and get to work. It was. <laughs> Great way to start the day. Wow. <laughs> That's a little depressing. Uh, okay, so then you – how is it that you uh, posted these four means by which civilization will end? What made me think of it was the whole horrible rollout of the Gemini AI this past week. That combined with the Russian nuclear weapons in space last week. Yeah, right. It just reminded me that there are so many more ways. Oh, that in the combination with this crazy weather we had this week, right? One of the headlines was about how we were going to go through three seasons in one day, as we did yesterday. So climate change, right? And it, it just made me think about when I was a kid, we all understood that we could get blown up by nuclear weapons. But now we've got the nuclear weapons, which are only becoming a bigger problem all the time. In space. The climate change. Got it, too. AI is inevitably going to come to a singularity, as they say. It's only a matter of time. Experts are thinking is maybe only like 30 years away. They used to say 50. Now what does singularity mean? When it becomes like really intelligent, like in the Terminator, okay. and can decide to do stuff by itself. So then it might wipe us out. What's your fourth way we're going to die? Oh, gain-of-function lab research. I mean, it's still going on. If what does that sure, mean? Well, we don't actually know for sure if COVID was a lab leak from China ah. or naturally occurring. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that it turns out the lab leak is a completely possible hypothesis okay let me ask you this and which of those four scenarios this is fun <laughs> what do i think is most likely yeah mankind will someday expire all life on earth will someday expire what do you think is going to of those four which is the most likely to doom us soonest i am less concerned about climate change if i think about all these things because i would say nuclear weapons potentially all by themselves but definitely, very possibly, in conjunction with AI. Oh, nice. Nice. So the the robots launch the nukes. Well, you could put it that way so you don't have to worry about it. But oh, Well, that's not much possible. consolation if you think that's going to happen. I think climate change will be our end. I think that uh, we'll just cook ourselves off the planet. John, your thoughts? I love the AI and nuclear weapons combination because I've actually read about the scenario in which that would happen, and it seems innocuous. It's not governments taking over. It's, let's say, AI is designed to make our 401ks as strong as possible and start to recognize that war actually brings prices of oil up and gets you invested in oil and then creates a scenario in which the prices skyrocket they're not trying to end the world. They're literally just trying to put more money in our pockets and realize that they can do it themselves. That sort of scenario kind of freaks me out. Wow. Wow. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I've raised your 401k by 5%. <laughs> because AI, if it becomes sentient, it's going to have a self-preservation mode in it, and it's going to want to avoid ending the world because it's going to need human labor probably or some sort of machine some sort of labor to keep its keep power going to it right i mean it's, i think it's going to always need some sort of human drones to help it out so i would say you know my guess would be that if you have severe climate change which will may have that will lead to wars which will lead to nuclear annihilation and I, that would be where i would put my uh, put my money movie reviews we've been working our way through the films nominated for best picture and while some of us have rotated in and out of our panel john you haven't been here for all of these we've already talked about barbie and some of these other movies in fact you've made it a point to see no movies since 1978 am i right <laughs> basically i'll get around to them 
I just have not seen a single one of the 10 yet. Some people like to sink their time into episodic television. That may be more you. My wife is more into that. I, I watch movies over and over again. So those of us who have seen Oppenheimer, Kate has... Eric has. I think that was the one uh, that we said we would do here, guys. Or was it uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? No. <laughs> uh, I'm, no. I'm sorry you haven't watched Killers of the Flower Moon yet, Kate, because I think it's really, really good. It's I really long. The first hour. Do your laundry or do, find something that requires three hours. If and, it was a podcast and I could listen to it while I was walking the dog. Oh yeah, right. John, have you seen any of the uh, ten nominated films? Not a single one. I'll sit here and listen to y'all. Or or do what I do on the radio. Comment freely. I was really I, – I listened to the podcast. I, I, I clicked out last week, and then I listened to how everybody loved uh, Past Lives. And uh, so I watched it. Joanne and I watched it this weekend. It's great. It's great. So, so uh, you're a very smart panel here. Um, I thought Oppenheimer was really, was really entertaining, really useful to know. I was a, a little disappointed that it didn't really show the impact – of the, I mean, it's all for anyone who doesn't know. Oppenheimer was, was the uh, coordinator, the physicist behind the creation of the atomic bomb, the uh, uh, project that was selling us. And and you saw the test, and you heard about it. You didn't actually see what destruction that bomb wrought. And I thought that was a mistake on the part of the movie. That, that it would have been important to see that, to show that, to see what exactly why this instrument was so was so awesome in a in a terrible way um, and uh but the the acting was was amazing and uh, the, the pacing was good it was a long movie but it didn't feel that way. you're critiquing a three-hour movie for cutting things out yeah i am i, I think because i think they could have spent a little bit of time showing the kind of, of human destruction and physical destruction of that bomb Right, yes. I was glad they didn't, Eric. I mean, yeah, they could have had actual footage from Hiroshima or Nagasaki. They could have reenacted some of it or some found a way. Every now and then they would show you the white hotness of it. They would show you sort of the brightness of it. I thought that at times I was given a sense of the power of the bomb without actually having to watch humans being destroyed by it. Maybe that I was grateful, Eric, was just because I didn't want to watch that, but maybe I should have. But I was grateful that we did not have to see that. I I, I did not find that a weakness. It was a bold move on their part not to. I do think Christopher Nolan should have consulted me first because I felt it would have been better if it was a movie about the Los Alamos not really the Manhattan Project, because I think that actually covered the nuclear chain reaction here at University of Chicago. So Los Alamos Project. Um, I think it would have been a better movie if it had focused on the project as a whole and a lot more of what, you know, the very dramatic elements of the actual invention of the bomb, um, as opposed to just Oppenheimer. Um, Killian Murphy, I feel like, Christopher Nolan just loves to rely on having close-ups of him with his eyes getting really big. He, they love to do that with him in all his movies. Okay, he's got big blue eyes. Enough. I get it. First of all, they should have done that. And then secondly, I, <laughs> I do agree with you, Eric. They really made the focus of this movie the fact that he devoted his life afterward to trying to get in place arms control, basically. It was a third of the movie almost. Right. Without having shown the true utter destruction, what what uh, at a human level, what it did to human beings, without having shown us that, it, it that kind of didn't make sense to me. You didn't feel like you got a sense of the awesomeness of it, the power of it, the destruction of it. Tell you the truth, I thought the the scene with the first you know test of the bomb in the desert, I thought that was going to be much more impactful than it was. Mm-hmm. And I've I've been thinking about it and trying to figure out why I was not as impressed with it as I thought I would be. I knew when I know when it was out in the theaters and a lot of people were going to see it in IMAX, I said, no way. I can't think of anything scarier. When we watched Doctor Strange Love and at the end of the movie it's just, you know, bomb after bomb after bomb going off. I thought that was very scary. Doctor Strangelove is one of my favorite movies, by the way. Love. I have Dr. seen Strangelove. that one. <laughs> Let's talk about that. I love Doctor Strangelove. 
Give me your favorite line from Doctor Strange Love. They're gonna see the big they're gonna see the big board. <laughs> you can't fight in the war room. Oh. James Earl Jones' first movie. Okay, my favorite line is definitely when uh the president asks George C. Scott's character whether or not the rogue plane can make it to Russia to drop off the bomb. And and he he just gets really excited about it. And at the end, he says, hell, yes, they could make it. And then he realizes that that would be a bad thing. I've been to one World's Fair, a picnic, and a rodeo, and that's the stupidest thing I ever heard come over a set of earphones. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I've seen the movie a couple of times. Okay. Well, hopefully this podcast isn't the stupidest thing you ever heard come over a set of earphones. Uh, I just want to add one thing, which is that if Ron Gulagong did play in the Battle of the Sexes, that she played against Illy Nastasi. It was the one set. Wow. And she beat him 7-5. So beat Nastasi? Boy, that's, yep. that's karma. Used- okay. Billie Jean King did shoot the puck. She won. By the way, just throwing that one out there after I had the Cindy Crawford thing. Listeners won't understand what any of this means. John, feel free to cut it out. <laughs> Billie Jean King didn't shoot the puck, did she? Yes, she did. A couple at, of years ago. At Blackhawks? At the uh, United Center? Years ago, yep. yep. That's John Hansen, Kate Plies, too, and Eric Zorn. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. Nice to see and talk to you guys this week. Thanks for joining us. See you back in the United States next week. I'm John Williams. We'll drop another pot on you next week. And Eric, you'll be out of the fishbowl next week, right? I'll be back in the United States, back in the USA. All right. Safe travels. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 